Welcome to this conversation as part of the special series on running for public office. This conversation is with Justin Chinette. Justin is most recently a two-term state senator for Maine's 31st legislative district. Previously, he served two terms in the House in Maine, which he was elected to in 2012 as one of the youngest state legislators in the country at age 21, and also as the youngest openly gay legislator in the entire country. Justin has and still is really involved in local government in Saco, Maine, and also heads efforts through an organization he founded called the Maine Democracy Project to build more civic engagement among young people. Justin and I have actually been connected for many years, though I actually forget how that all started. In this discussion, we dive into a bunch of really interesting topics, such as tips on running for office for the first time and navigating dynamics with party bosses, how much value there is in learning about your community and your constituents' needs through non-political activities, how to influence and participate in local government and issues in your community, and a whole lot more. Definitely suggest checking out the conversation and looking Justin up online and seeing some of the work that he does. You can find some links to all of that in the show notes and description. Enjoy. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Rethinking with Alex Torpy. Um, I'm really excited to be here in conversation today with Justin Chinette, um, just recently uh, a state senator from the 31st Legislative District in Maine. Justin, thank you so much again uh, for joining today. Thanks for having me, Alex. Absolutely. Um, so you first ran for the state legislature in uh, 2011 or 2012. Um, you were elected, you were one of the youngest state legislators in the country um, at the time. Now walk us through what you were kind of going through thinking about running for office. If you can rewind all the way back to 2012, um, what was going on? What were you concerned about? What were you excited about? How did you kind of confront those challenges the first time you ran? Absolutely. I, I was going to college at the time for broadcast news. Um, I was going to school in Vermont. Uh, I lived in Maine. Um, and so I ultimately decided it was one of those aha Oprah moments, Alex, where uh, I sort of recognized that my level of frustration with the political system and the political dynamics at the time and, and sort of my inability to keep my mouth shut <laughs> would sort of force me to have a difficult conversation around my role as a journalist, which obviously you learn a, as a journalist, particularly when you're going to school for it, uh, that you really have to separate yourself from your, the story. You really can't get involved. You have to just report the facts. Mm -hmm. At least that's what you learn in school. <laughs> it's theoretical, <laughs> right. Right. Um, and so I, I sort of ultimately decided on a whim to run for an open legislative seat. In my case, I knew um, the incumbent who was termed out, um, which is a unique situation, uh, but I didn't ask for anyone's permission. Um, I sort of didn't wait my turn. I was 20 years old at the time, still had spiky hair, um, and I was a college student. And so that doesn't necessarily mean legislative uh, potential right there. Um, and so um, I, ultimately, when I made the decision, I got immediate uh, negative feedback from folks in the party. They didn't think I was a viable candidate because of my youth, 
I had never run for public office before, obviously, at 20 years old. Um, you know, I had been involved in the community to a certain extent, but more from a journalistic standpoint uh, on like public access television, it wasn't really anything to do with uh, sort of government or internal government. Um, but ultimately, I, I channeled that frustration into making that decision. And then once I made that decision, uh, I really had to own it because there was so much pushback from the system telling me no, telling me to wait my turn, telling me this is not the time for you. Um, and, and that was difficult to swallow. As a 20-year-old college student, everyone was telling me don't do something. Um, right. Maybe it was a little naive saying, you know, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, but at the same time, I believe that I could make a difference. I believe that youth should be at the table. And so I believed it so much that I felt like, well, why not me? Why can't I make that difference? Why can't I make those voices heard in that capacity? So it was a tough decision to make, but but it was a little bit tougher, I think, when when so, there was so much pushback. And I think that's not uncommon uh, that when young people want to get more involved, they tend to get a little bit of friction from folks that have been in the system a while. And that's exactly what I came across when I made that decision. So how did you kind of react to that? So you're interested in getting involved. You kind of bring the idea up. Some of the party bosses, it kind of sounds like weren't so thrilled about it. And then you decided, well, you know, I don't really want to wait. I want to do this now. What did you do from that? How did you kind of get everything together? Were you worried that not having support from the sort of um, institutions that were there? Was that, I imagine you were worried it was going to make it more difficult raising money, doing the kind of political organizing needed. How did you kind of build those capacities up? Well, I think this is where um, having someone in your corner is important, even if it's just one person. Mm -hmm. um, and so in this case, it was a mentor. In this case, it was the incumbent. Because I knew the incumbent and I was helping her on her Senate campaign, it was sort of then a seamless thing to be able to then run for her house seat. And so it was a unique set of circumstances, but for anybody listening, that it's the same sort of concept. Finding somebody who's doing the work that you want to do um, and in trying to learn from that individual, whether it's immediately as you're running or even way before, hopefully, when you make that decision, I think is important because that way you're able to make important connections. You see how it's done behind the scenes because what you see sort of from a public view is really different from the hard work of not just political campaigns, but even government service behind, behind the scenes. And so finding a mentor was critical. I was able to then uh, work with that individual and that mentor to understand the uh, sort of one-on-one -on -one of fundraising and making community connections. Again, I didn't have a Rolodex of, of, of uh, contacts that other folks had um, being so young. And so it was really important to find, um, you know, again, a mentor, an individual to help you through that process. Um, and at the same time, not letting the naysayers sort of get you down. There's always going to be somebody in your life, mm -hmm. whether we're talking politics or not, that that's, and it might be just a little voice inside your head, Alex. It might not necessarily <laughs> be somebody else, but ultimately there's always going to be somebody external that says, this is not right for you. This is not your time. You are not good enough. You're not this, that, or the other. And your job is to take that with a grain of salt. It doesn't mean that you can't take constructive feedback. That's a different 
thing that I'm talking about. When, when, when it's folks that are just trying to sort of put, push their own insecurities onto you, which is exactly what it is, you can't let that get to you. Um, and ultimately I found that the constituents, the folks in the community really were hungry for a youth voice. They were really saying, wow, we really want new energy. We want passion. We want somebody who's really gonna go to bat for us. And so that was a different dynamic and, we, and such a positive experience from the establishment saying, wait your turn, you're not old enough yet. And so to see that I think is, is also a testament to some of the problems we have in our political system where the establishment has their idea of who the good candidates are, but yet the public has their expectations for what they would like to see. And so I think once you start getting that positive feedback uh, from, from the folks that you're seeking to represent, um, I, I think ultimately that helps to channel your energies and your passions into continuing with the campaign, continuing with your path, regardless of the naysayers that try to push you down. Oh, it's great. I love talking about um, one of the things that I hear from, um, from what you just um, talked to us a little bit about there is the importance of finding people to listen to and the importance of what you're learning from what you're hearing from other people. And it may be that you come to the conclusion that the person is not necessarily giving you advice for your own best interest, but is protecting the interests of some people that are in power existing. Um, and it's your job to sort of take all of those things in and triage them and figure out uh, what you want to do going forward. But it sounds like it's been really important to you throughout this process and of finding ways to uh, get feedback from people um, and feel that you genuinely understand what's happening in the community and that you're not just sort of basing this off of, you know, what, what you only what you thought might be the issues that need to be addressed. Right, the more local you can make it, regardless if you're running for a statewide position or a legislative seat or a council seat, or, or even if you're trying to serve in just a government capacity, understanding who you're seeking to represent is first and foremost, because right. it doesn't matter what your the political party thinks. It doesn't matter even what the party committee on the local level thinks, because ultimately, it's up to voters to make their up their own minds. And yes, it's always great to have the support of the establishment, but at the same time, like a lot of times I see, in, and I was the same way, I wanted to make changes to the system. I, I thought the system wasn't working. And so why, why do you need permission, right, to, to, to try to help people? <laughs> why do you need permission to try to do good? If that's right. your intention, if your intention is to try to make change in your community or in your state, um, if that's truly your path, and, and maybe it's running for office, it may not be running for office. Ultimately, taking in that information, figuring out what is the district that you live in? How long has the person been there? Is it an open seat? Is it a, is it a seat that somebody's been there for 20, 30 years? All of those factors come into play. You don't just decide I'm going to run on a whim and say, I'm not going to look at those factors. I mm -hmm. obviously looked at the fact that my district happened to be a more democratic district. That also weighs into consideration, right? You might be a Republican, but you're in a district who's never elected a Republican ever. That's a different, <laughs> so that's right. That's an important factor, right? That doesn't mean you can't necessarily do it, but it also means that do you want to run to lose or is there some other end game here? How, how can you best be of service? And service takes so many different forms. It might be signing up 
for a committee or a commission or a board of director for an, uh, a nonprofit organization that's doing good. You might end up with that decision and that doesn't mean it's any of less importance uh, just because your title looks different or you don't even have a title. There's so much good you can do, but obviously I encourage everybody to consider running for office, particularly if you're a little bit younger because we need more young people at the table in crafting the policy solutions. But understanding your community is first and foremost and you only do that by being involved in the communities that you're seeking to serve. Right. I mean, this is kind of a, you know, understanding the community is sort of a quantitative and qualitative data collection project, right? I mean, you can look at some of the numbers and I'm sure those are things that you are familiar with in your region. Um, and there are different metrics for different levels of government, depending on what you're looking at. You know, when I ran for office locally, you know, I'm looking at property taxes and crime in the community um, and vacant storefronts and things like that. And those things are helpful, but it's the, sometimes it's the qualitative experiences where you're just directly involved in something, which I know is something that you spent a lot of time doing um, in your area in Maine, where you're actually working with people in different communities in ways that are not your ways. They're not necessarily ways that are born of your position in the legislature. They're ways that people are already engaging in issues that are important to them. And finding ways, you know, we were just talking about this beforehand. I know for me, one of those things was being on the rescue squad in South Orange and being an EMT and just seeing how the police department functions, how the fire department functions and what people in town are thinking about what's going on. I mean, you know, I mentioned a story where one night um, uh, someone was, uh, I was on my shift in the rescue squad and uh, unfortunately there was an armed robbery. Somebody was mugged and were taking the patient to the hospital and they happened to recognize me. Um, and, you know, uh, as um, we're, were, they were okay, but we were, we were taking them to get checked out. And he mentioned something about the crime and, and things like that. I said, okay, well, right, right now I got to, you know, I've got the EMT hat on, so I'm going to do that. But, but I gave him my phone number or business card and he came into my office hours and we had a really deep and kind of intense conversation about crime. And honestly, it was a really, it was a hard conversation because crime had been going down in South Orange and having, the, and obviously there was more that we could do, but having the kind of conversation with someone for, with a firsthand experience like that is just, it's a whole other way to experience uh, the community that you're supposed to be serving. And so I wonder if you would share with us some of the different ways I know you've been really involved in a lot of different organizations in your community. What are some of the ways you've been plugged in? What are some of the things you've learned like from those interactions with people that helped you in your job as a legislator, but which you might not have learned otherwise? So I think it's, it's helpful on both fronts. So when you're in the lead up to thinking about running for office and in addition to serving in that capacity. So in the lead up to running for office, you know, sign up for every possible club and committee mm -hmm. that you can sign up for, because it's not only helpful feedback for you understanding the community, it's helpful for you to get your name out there. It's helpful for you to sort of showcase your values through tangible actions, right? So when people see you, and, and I'll give you an example, when I was first running, I uh, was a part of an organization that focuses on downtown revitalization and, and sort of main street events, large scale events. And we were putting on our community turn 250 years old. Mm. And so um, I did things like dressing up like a colonial man and helped organize like different fun events, like a parade and like a square dancing uh, competition and just like fun things to promote the history of our community. And I did that. I wasn't 
any title. I wasn't in any position. And true, I was I was running for office, but I enjoyed those things. But one of the things that helped me was I, everyone saw me at all these different events. Um, and so when when they did, they felt like, okay, there's an accessibility there. That's really important. And part of my campaign was about transparency, accountability, accessibility, making sure that, you know, like you can pick up, you know, the cell phone and call me anytime, you know, uh, at home, <laughs> you know, you can email me, you could tweet me, you can Facebook me, but you can also see me in the community. And so not only did I enjoy those things, because I really do enjoy those things, but it's helpful for, you know, folks to be able to then come up to you. And yes, it's kind of awkward, you know, sometimes if you're not used to it, when you're at an event and, you know, the event is a pumpkin harvest festival and they're like, so Justin, let's talk about transportation, right? But Alex, <laughs> I'm sure you know all about that being yeah. mayor, right? Mm -hmm. you, it's sort of, even if you're at the barbershop or you're getting your hair done or, or you're at the grocery store, that's going to happen, right? But that is important. If you don't spend as much time in your the communities that you're serving than you are at a, either a state house or a city hall, you're not doing your job effectively because you can't govern from inside an office. You just can't do it unless your office is having office hours. <laughs> so you're doing office hours, great, but make those office hours online because not everyone can physically be there. So maybe do like a Facebook Live at night. The key is to find ways of connecting to people in, in fun and interactive ways and meet them where they're at. Think of yourself as like a business. You want to go where their customers are, mm -hmm. right? You don't want to have to have them always come to you. You need to go to them. And so that could be signing up for a club. It could be Rotary, for instance. Maybe you have Rotary in your area. Being a part of that, that way you're plugged into all the, the key volunteer opportunities. And that way you know, like you're gonna get an alert when they're you know, trying to feed people, you know, for instance, during the pandemic and, and they're doing a, a food, food drive effort. Um, you know, those are important aspects of the job. It may not be written down anywhere. It might not say, as a legislator, you're supposed to do X, Y, Z. But I think that, that it's just as important to do, and probably if, if not even more, uh, to be involved and provide leadership right in your own town or the communities that you serve than just passing a bill at the state house um, or, or passing an initiative at City Hall. Mm -hmm. um, people value those things. And I can't tell you how many times people say they value my community work probably even more so than my legislative work. Because the legislative work, Alex, it's like, it's far away, right. right? It's a little closer than federal government, but it can seem removed from everyday life. You can try to make the connections. Oh, I passed a reduction in property taxes. Great check mark off the box, right? But then when you help a neighbor, you know, get get something or you you help somebody in the community and you're visible, that matters almost as much as that bill that you passed. And so you could focus all your efforts on legislation or an important policy initiative, but ultimately those those human to human, those community connections and that, that volunteer work, um, I find is just as important. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I mean, it kind of, and it kind of guarantees you a feedback loop. I mean, you know, I'm sure that you've been pulled aside and had really fun conversations with people about things, but I'm sure you've been pulled aside and people have brought up something that was re a really big problem that they were dealing with or something that they're very critical of you about. And, you know, when you're kind of out and about like that, you, you know, you're, there's no, there's no ivory tower, you know, when you're, when you're make yourself available in those ways. And, you know, it's one of the things that I think that we've seen um, happen in a lot of leadership positions, people end up getting these false positive feedback loops where they sort of surround themselves with people who kind of give them the thumbs up. But if you're going out 
and you're meeting different people and new people and you're that available, you know, the odds are that if there's an issue, somebody's going to come walk up to you and tell you about it. And if you're open-minded to hearing that, that just create, I mean, that's an entirely different experience of being in office. Right. And, and I'll tell you even a, a story that probably doesn't make me look the best, but it's a good example of, of hearing that constructive feedback. I really tried to pride myself when I was serving uh, of being accessible. So like you can call my cell, you can do all of those things. And so I really thought that I was doing a good job with that. And I thought I was staying on top of all you know, constituent communication. And I managed that myself. I didn't have a staffer, you know, help mm -hmm. me with that. Um, you know, other states have different levels of staff assistance. Um, but I was at uh, an event and somebody came up to me and was very critical that they hadn't heard from me. And I was like, what do you mean you haven't heard from me? I'm right here. Like I have my phone. I, you know, I'm doing all these things. I, I'm, I really try my best. And, you know, it turns out, um, you know, the email went to like the spam folder or something, right. some, some issue there. But of course the constituent was very aggressive about it, but it didn't really matter. They thought I was ignoring them. Right. And so I took that very personally, but I didn't, let them know that but i was like i was really hurt by it. i was like oh my gosh i want to do better like i i need to fix this and so that because i was visible because i was present they didn't have to go through some staff person to give that feedback they didn't just send an email you know behind a keyboard i was face to face with that criticism and so i then took that and said what can we do to remedy the situation what, what's done is done i didn't respond or i didn't do whatever the excuse was it what didn't matter let's go forward let's fix it and so i was able to find follow up and the person probably still mad at me, but the key is that I still followed up and I still tried to help them. But but that visibility, that accessibility is so important. So even if you disagree with your the political leader or you disagree with the person, um, as long as you're at least there to listen and you try to seek to understand, that's half the battle, right? That's what people really expect you to do in that office. And so it doesn't really matter if you're a Democrat or Republican or which level of office you are in, uh, the same concept applies. You work for the people. You are their person. It's sort of like, um, I always think of political campaigns as job interviews, right? You're seeking to get a job uh, to work for them and the people are your boss. And so if you put everything through that prism that the people, the public, the voters, your constituents are the boss and you're uh, you know, the employee, it changes how you approach the position. It changes how you apply yourself. And ultimately, I think it leads to better outcomes. That's great. Um, now, I want, I want to um, talk about something similar to that that we were talking about a little earlier, which is, you know, we've seen, and I think you've seen this through a lot of the work in, out in the community, is that there's a lot of energy, especially this year, that has gained, especially among even younger people, wanting to uh, kind of put their voice into the process. Um, what are some ways, so you've got people out there that are enthusiastic about making change to, you know, generally speaking, a system of government that they don't feel is representing their interests the best. Um, how, what do you see, I mean, going forward for people in that kind of mindset, um, talk to us a little bit about kind of what you've seen out there and what your recommendation, any ideas might be for someone who feels really motivated, isn't 100% sure where to plug in. 
Absolutely. And it's really great to see so much passion and energy. And I think we're zeroing in on, you know, Gen Z in particular. Mm-hmm. They're not waiting around for permission to get involved. They're 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 saying, you know, they they they've they're creating or they're sensing the that urgency to solve the problems today, not waiting around, you know, 10 or 30 years for somebody else to right. to solve it. They want to be part of the solution, which in and of itself is is so inspiring to see that. Um, I think it's really important for young people that are sort of figuring out where to begin, which can seem very intimidating. It's like, how do I start? You know, whether we're talking climate change or, or racial issues, it can seem like it's such a big undertaking. How can my one voice make an impact? Um, and so I think there's a tendency to, to look at it from an outsider's perspective, and, and rightfully so. Like, I'm going to go to a protest or I'm going to go, um, you know, to a strike and say that's going to make the impact. And that, that does generate awareness, which is great. But I hope then we can then channel that and make those connections to help those young people or anybody looking to get involved to channel that frustration and that passion into something constructive. And what I mean by that is, you know, whether no matter what issue that we're talking about, when you try to look at it holistically, it can kind of seem like how can my one corner of the universe really make the shift and, and make the impact and move the needle on this issue? But ultimately, those smaller decisions and those smaller actions are going to yield to bigger outcomes when so many people participate. And so I'll use an example. Um, I recently helped get two young women on um, a local conservation commission, our city's local conservation commission. So this commission is, is, is set up to help preserve local lands. It's helped to promote the environment in the community. And so these two young women, they volunteered with me in the past and, and they had a passion for, for tackling climate change, but again, didn't know where to begin, uh, but wanted to get more involved. And so uh, they simply filled out an application through the city's website. And a lot of people might, you know, have never visited their city's website before. Right, right. But to know that that is available, knowing that you can submit your name to the mayor's office. And in our town, you know, if you want to volunteer, we'll let you, right, <laughs> you know, right. there isn't like layers of bureaucracy here that are like, well, we have to really think about it. You pretty much got it if you want to do it. Right. And so the key is there's so many opportunities like that. It doesn't have to be for a city commission, but they're advising and making you know, advisory decisions for the, the council, right? So they're recommending to the council, you need to do this climate resolution, for instance. Those have sizable impacts. And so that's an example where you don't have to run for office. Yeah, it's not a paid position, but you can do it at night once a month. You know, that helps to move the needle, right, in a constructive way. Signing up for a political uh, advocacy organization. Um, you know, again, there's so much out there. I, I think the more local you can make it, the better. If there's a local chapter of something, do that rather than being a member of a national organization because you're going to get email alerts, but then you're going to have nothing to do with that other than, okay, send an email to your legislator and you'll sign up and they'll send an automatic thing to some unnamed staffer, right? But you want to get into the ground roots, the grassroots level. You want to see how you can make a tangible impact. Go to the, an actual meeting, whether it's through Zoom or otherwise. So I just think starting with your local community, see what's available in your town, in your immediate town, what's right down the street. And I find that nine times out of 10, there's some opportunity to make an impact. And you'd be surprised how much voice you have when you volunteer. Because again, 
typically they get the same kind of people that volunteer there's there and those people are kind of worn out <laughs> you know right. and so to have new energy and a new approach you actually can have a sizable impact on the decision making in your local community and enough enough people get involved with their local community and everyone's making those important you know, might be smaller decisions, it's going to add up to some a monumental impact with, with whatever decision or, or issue we're trying to tackle. And this is really the only way, not the only way, but maybe one of the most important ways that policy actually moves forward is starting at local levels and getting done by municipalities and counties and states, then multiple states do it, then the federal government does it. And this is the starting point, even though I mean, everybody takes the kind of first step. Every policy isn't a policy at some point. Um, and so uh, I love hearing about um, the sort of um, everything about wanting to plug in at the local level, because not only are there not in a lot of towns, there are I think you're right that there aren't that many people that do it. There's often not a lot of young people that are doing those sorts of positions. And so you're bringing you're helping to represent a generation that's not necessarily in the process as much. And you might be able to bring some friends to get involved in some of those things. And at least what my experience is, and I'm sure this isn't the case everywhere, but you know, if you call like a local city hall or town hall and you look for you know, a clerk or uh, a staff person in like an administrator's office or someone like that, and you're asking on information on how to volunteer, they're probably going to be very helpful. Um, and depending on who the person is, um, they might be excited about the prospect of somebody new, you know, helping take on some of the work on the committee that they might be helping. So it's often, it seems sort of daunting because the council meetings are sort of, you know, one-sided and the city hall might be like a little unapproachable, but for the most part, it's more approachable. Would you say it's more approachable than it seems? Right, and I would say your elected officials are more approachable than they seem, right? right. <laughs> so, um, you know, and again, I can only speak for Maine, but but most of the state legislatures, for instance, are part-time. And so you're talking to regular people that are working other jobs right. than just being your legislator. And so you'd be surprised when five people contact your, your state legislator, that's a big deal for a state legislator, right? They're like really nervous. And I'm just speaking to Maine, but maybe it's this way in other places. If you get a call, and I'm not talking like generic emails that are from the surveys and from the petitions that everyone right. signs on moveon.org. I'm talking about if you pick up your cell phone, right? And you call your state legislator, and in Maine's case, you can call our cell, but in other places, you probably have to call their office that it's a big deal, right? They want to respond right away. They want to get involved um, and they want to help you out. Um, and so on an issue, if you get you and a bunch of friends to contact your legislator, I'm not talking about, you know, at the federal level, but if you contact your state legislator, that has such a huge impact or your city councilor or your mm -hmm. local government official, that has such an impact. I can't even tell you because you get thousands sometimes of emails that are generic that are from the petitions but if i get a, a unique email that someone's upset and they live in my district i take that very seriously and i know other people do that as well so whether we're talking at the advocacy angle or we're talking about how you get involved start with who are representing you see how you can get more involved with that see if your your legislator will uh, allow you to shadow for the day mm. i always took students with me whether middle school high school or college to the state house i also had an open invite 
for any adult too to say, hey, you want to see the process up close, particularly those that criticize the process, come right. up and see, right? Because it's so different, right? How many jobs that you know about are then shown on the evening news at 11 o'clock that recap your day? right? Not a lot, right? And so usually they'll summarize the legislative day in 30 seconds or less, right? And that's not usually a good indicator of what we actually did that day, right? They might be talking about the golden retriever being the state dog bill and not talking about campaign finance reform bill, but that's okay. Um, and so when you see it up close, I can't tell you how many like light bulbs went off. Like, I didn't know this is what the process was. And a lot of people don't even know they are allowed to go and see the process up right. close. And so if you're thinking about running for office, if you're thinking about getting more involved, the first thing to do is just see the lay of the land, mm -hmm. understand the process. So go to your city council meeting. You probably have never been before. So go to your city council meeting, see how boring it is and see, do you want to sit through that for four hours at a time? Right. And just see. And Alex, I'm sure you'll say, oh, no, it's really exciting. Yeah, I will but not you, say that. <laughs> <laughs> but you want to know, like, would you be able to sit, you know, and I'm, I'm just taking our local town as an example. Can you sit there till 11 o'clock at night, drilling down on which street you should fill the potholes on? Like, do you like that? Do you find that exciting? For some people that might be like, yes, Justin, I think that's wonderful. Others might be like, I will fall asleep, right? So maybe that's not for you, right? Shadowing your legislator at the state house, seeing the process up close. Somebody might be like, wow, this is the most exciting thing. And others will be like, this is like watching paint dry because it, there are long periods of time when you're really not doing, <laughs> doing anything. You have to wait for the bill to come back from the Senate or the House or vice versa. You, you know, there's so much to the process that you don't get to see. So get out there and see it. And nine times out of 10, they will let you do it. And otherwise, it's your person that they work, you know, you work, that person works for you. So um, even if they don't want to, you know, shadow you around for the day, you can still show up. You can go visit your state house after COVID, you know, and you can go to your city council meeting. And now the good thing is, Alex, so much is now digital and online that the accessibility argument is not even there anymore. You it's can a lot easier in some ways. Go to, right. You can go to your town hall virtually. You can go to this now state house for, for us. All the committees have been put online. So you now can even testify in your pajamas if you really wanted to with a glass of wine. And so that's really important, right? And so now you can actually access a lot of these things uh, in, in, a, in a very real way. So the key is to dip your toes in, understand the process, see what you're getting into, it might actually lead you down a different path. You may have thought you wanted to do something. And then when you, it's like shadowing for a job, right? If you shadow somebody for the job and you're like, I know for sure I'm going to go to school for this. Then you shadow somebody for the job and you're like, oh my gosh, what did I, what was I thinking, right? It's different than what your perception was. And so I would just encourage people to see it up close, interact with it and see if it's the right thing. You might then be taken off in a different direction or you might be like, I'm reaffirmed that this is what I need to be doing. Uh, I'm so glad you said all of that. And I think that it's so important for people to hear that in the beginning part of getting involved, you might guide yourself with a sort of idea of where you want to get to or what your goal might be. But a lot of this is, you know, I might say now, I'm not sure five years ago, me would agree with what I'm about to say, but it's almost more of an art than a science sort of figuring this out is getting in and seeing what's out there, seeing what strikes you as the kind of right way for you to plug in um, and just letting yourself navigate that a little bit and kind of figure it out as you go. Um, there's really no predicting, 
you know, where your interest could get turned to once you really see, like you said, just, I mean, there's so much happening. I mean, even the, you know, four or five hour council meetings, you know, to me, those were, you know, the, the, the I mean, I would probably say that was one of the worst parts of the job because it was just so boring and it was procedural and it's sort of necessary, but it's like, all right, so, but, but here's a, an example is like, all right, so we've got to meet in these meetings because that is what the state law requires for open public meetings. And that's a good thing. I mean, we should all be meeting in public to some degree like that and allowing people to access the process. However, I think what a lot of towns do is they sort of leave it at that. They say, okay, well, this is what the law says. So we're going to do exactly what the law says. And as you know, I mean, you can do a lot more than that. And, you know, those meetings, for example, they just felt, I mean, they're, you know, the, the councils, you know, kind of elevated up above everybody else, and you only get three minutes to speak, and it's not really great for back and forth, even just technically, how do you keep consistent time limits with different speak? It's just like, it's not a great interactive process. It's a great way to learn, um, and it's a great way to go and, you know, stop your government or raise the alarms if you think something is going wrong that people need to hear about. But there's so many other ways to plug in that are actually interesting and fun um, that don't involve sitting and listening to, you know, resolution 2019-19. Like, you don't have to do that all day. You know, I don't think that most of us think that's the fun part of the job either. Um, it's just sort of the, the, the you know, the, the process of what it looks like from that perspective. And so don't let those things even dissuade you. If they bring up an interesting issue at a council meeting and you want to dive into it more, maybe the council member who talked about it is someone that you could follow up with and ask them about the project and see if there's a way to get involved. Yeah, and, and the same thing on the legislative level. Uh, honestly, if you're not, if you don't have a thick skin for rejection, politics is not for you. Right. <laughs> so, you know, we, you could be filing dozens of bills a year and nine times out of 10, your bills are not going to pass. Right. And so that's a hard reality for folks that might expect everyone to just think like, this is important, we should just do it. That doesn't necessarily, there's so many factors involved. How much does it cost to fix it? What is the solution that you're actually proposing? Has it been tried before? Who filed the bill before? Who's in power? Who's controlling the committee process? You know, there's so many different elements that could go wrong that have nothing to do with whether or not people believe in the issue or believe in the solution to the issue. Right. You know, some people might not even think there is an issue to solve. So if you're proposing a solution to an issue that people don't think there's an issue with, that's a problem, right? <laughs> and right. you're not going to, you're to get pushback. And so knowing that and seeing that is important so that you know what you're getting into one, but also number two, you understand how to plug in in a way that's going to be productive. And that's also going to hopefully aim to kind of push the process forward. One of the things that you mentioned, Alex, is sort of like planning out your involvement. A lot of times you can't plan how you're involved in these things, like particularly running for office. I know so many people that went to school for political science because they love watching MSNBC or Fox News or whatever. And they really just, they love, they, as soon as they were birthed, they were like, I'm ready for running for office. <laughs> right. I know you know who those people are too, Alex, and yep. they're, they're out there, <laughs> uh, particularly in the Twitterverse, right? No, no, nothing wrong with that, which is great. But, but at the same time, like, it's great that you want to think you're going to be president of the United States, and it's great that you think you're going to be a congressperson, but then break down, like, what are you going to do for a job? Because your first 
gig is it probably going to be a full-time position. Right. Um, it's not going to, you know, I don't know what, what it is for mayor, but like for us, we're part-time legislators. And so for us- We got nothing. We got zero. Okay. Well, that's Terrible. a good example because if yeah. you're thinking you're going to be mayor of a town or you're going to be a state legislator and not have to worry about bills, you're sadly mistaken, right? And so, in, and I think local service is a good example of that. Your town councilors barely get a stipend usually, right. you know, uh, or your select board even less so. Um, and so knowing that, and, and, and if, if there is a way to plan, plan what you want to do for a job, plan what you want to do for a career. It may be in line with service. It may not be, right? Service may be your secondary sort of fun outlet, <laughs> if you want to call it that, versus your day job. And there's some cases, I know you've had experience doing this, there's jobs in government that we always need filled, right? That's one thing, right? Running for office is an entirely different category. And right. so it's just really important. And sometimes there's crossover, maybe you use one experience to, to color the other, but knowing that and knowing you're gonna have to probably do some other job first is really important because I can't tell you how many times my friends that have majored in political science, they get a job, let's say on a, on a federal campaign, then the federal campaign loses and then there's no jobs for them. And so then they have to work in menial jobs or jobs that are not related to their field for a while until the next campaign comes along. Some people find that exhilarating. Some mm -hmm. others find that very frustrating. Um, and so knowing some of that is really important. And you only get that by talking to folks that have done it, both good and bad, right? You want to get that feedback, um, particularly if you're considering running for office. You need to think about, especially when you're selecting majors and, 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 and on that side of the equation, when you're really early on in sort of charting out what you want to do the rest of your life, which is a big question mark, you want to think about the job element more than the service element. Because the service element, as you will attest, Alex, you can come in and out of service, right? And, and I, I'm just leaving service, but you can, you can come out of it, you can go into it at any point in your life. But the question mark is, what are you going to do to pay your bills? Right. <laughs> and that's it's a big question mark, and it's an important yeah. one. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a question that sometimes it gets overlooked in either the ambition or the excitement of running for office, which is it is exciting to a certain extent. But but you don't want that to cloud your judgment of the day to day life, because a lot of times and a lot of the folks that folks see publicly have to do other jobs. And that sometimes isn't part of the um, conversation when you're thinking about running. It's true. And that, you know, uh, public service loan forgiveness program, not as easy to get into as it seems. Uh, I don't know if um, you've come across this, but apparently being a mayor uh, at zero dollars a year does not qualify you. Being a mayor who would have been salaried for one dollar a year would have qualified me. And they somehow uh, have interpreted the uh, federal law, which is not the way I interpret it, but is that volunteer full time volunteers uh, don't, aren't eligible. So the less you make, the less eligible you are from a benefit to help you pay off your student loans. Um, so that of course makes total sense. Um, but it's important. These things, I mean, what I'm hearing, and I'm glad you're talking about these things. We've covered this a little bit. And if you, if you're listening to this and you haven't watched the full series on how to run for office, we go through some of the steps that Justin just mentioned, as far as thinking and planning out how your life really practically on a day-to-day -day basis is going to work. And make sure you've got that all figured out so that when you jump into this, you can be sort of fully committed um, and not realize a year in like, uh oh, something's wrong. Um, now, there's something else I wanted to ask you about that I forgot to mention before, which is one of the cool things um, 
that I've seen out of Maine, uh, aside from some really beautiful camping um, along the coast is ranked choice voting, um, which is something that I am uh, a really um, uh, big proponent of exploring. We saw Alaska passed ranked choice voting first or recently. Um, and another interview, I don't know which one is gonna air at which time, but I don't know if you know uh, Nick Troiano from United America. Yes, okay, cool. Um, so Nick and I go back a ways uh, as well. And we were just, we did uh, an interview recently. So I just wonder if you have anything to sort of reflect on or add to about uh, Maine being one of the first states to move ranked choice voting forward and, and what that is. I think it's gone really well. Uh, I mean, people voted not once, but twice at the ballot box saying, verifying that, yes, this is the system for us. What happened um, the first time? They did it and then it wasn't adopted into law or what happened? Well, see, one of the problems with the referendum process, and probably it's like this in other states, but in Maine, uh, legislators are not bound by previous decisions. And so what we, ha we had a situation where um, not just with the ranked choice voting decision, but a lot of other referendums like marijuana and uh, legalization, um, uh, taxing the super wealthy to pay for education, all of these referendums passed relatively around the same time. And the legislature can choose not to implement them, hmm. uh, even though you went to the ballot box and it was a free and fair election. And, and who so added the referendums to the ballot? Like those were organizations or petitions? Yep, so it was a citizen-led referendum. They went out, they got the petitions, they got it on the ballot, people said yes. Then the legislature was like, whoa, Nelly, let's hmm. uh, slow this down um, for, for a whole host of political reasons. Most that I didn't agree with, but that's that's what happens. Um, but but ultimately, um, so ranked choice voting passed. Then there was some some stalling. There was some you know uh, back and forth. One political party took it personally and wanted to try to overturn it, and uh, it was just this this back and forth. Then the courts got a little bit involved, so it got more messy than it needs mm -hmm. to be, o and ultimately it got more partisan than it needs to be. Because to me, ranked choice voting is an equalizer. Right. Uh, it actually. Uh, to me is almost a detriment to both political parties, which means Agreed. it should be by both. But um, <laughs> it, it actually helps not just independence, but it gives more choice um, in the process for the public. And also I think it actually makes your job as a voter easier. Like when we had so many candidates running for governor, it was nice to be able to rank the candidates because it does a couple things. Number one, you can, you know, uh, you know, you can look at all the candidates. You can't, you don't just have to say, oh, I picked my one horse and I'm gonna right. stick with it. You can actually evaluate all the candidates, take some time to do that. And at the same time, on the candidate side, they don't want to attack their, particularly in a primary election, for instance, they don't want to attack their other candidates because guess what? They might need those second or third votes in that process. So if you're sort of process of elimination and one of the people that you attack gets eliminated, where do those votes go? Right. You have to think strategically about that. And so it, it, the goal with rank, one of the goals with ranked choice voting, besides just giving more choice to voters, it also hopefully lessens the negativity, at least amongst the candidates, right? We can't control super PACs and all of that. We have to have a conversation at a, at a more of a national level about fixing that. But from a candidate to candidate standpoint, we did see a reduction in the negativity. In fact, Alex, we saw candidates do ads together. Hmm. Which is which is crazy to think about that you're competing for a an important position. Normally, you don't see folks team up, but then you started to see like in in a Democratic primary, you saw like two progressives get together and say, "Okay, alone we're not going to you know make it, but if we tag team together, maybe we'll have a better chance 
percentage wise, and maybe one of us will get it, right? And so you started to see more strategic collaborations. You saw a reduction in negativity. And at the same time, voters had more choice. They could say, okay, yes, I could take the chance on, right. on voting for somebody who may not normally win uh, and they might still not win, but I still feel good that I voted for that person. And maybe that's important to you. Um, and, but then you voted for the person that you know has the best shot at winning as your number two. That matters because you feel like your vote is meaningful. Your vote isn't like a wasted vote, quote unquote. Um, and so it's, it's a good equalizer within the parties. It lifts up a variety of different voices. It adds more choice and it reduces negativity in politics. All of those things are positive. And, and ultimately we see when we're passing electoral reform at the ballot box, whether we're talking ranked choice voting or automatic voter registration or a whole host of other things, it increases political participation in the process. That ultimately benefits everybody. I don't care what political party you are. When we increase the amount of people participating and voting, that is good for our democracy. Agreed, agreed. And one of the things that I'm hoping we can do on this podcast is sort of remind people that there's so many different uh, things that we take for granted about the way things are designed that we don't even think about sometimes. Um, and the fact that we uh, push a button for someone instead of rank them, I mean, it doesn't have to be. There's so many different ways that you can design systems to make choices. And, um, and this is a step that helps make elections more competitive and especially from independence. And the idea of sort of creating an incentive to um, uh, have people maybe be a little less divergent in their narratives is an amazing upside of this because there's almost nothing in our society that does that. Everything is sort of incentivized to allow, you know, hyper siloed narratives to just keep multiplying themselves in different directions. And here's something that does a little bit of the opposite. And, you know, that's a, that's a very interesting thing to think about. Um, and, and so keep in mind, And keep in mind too, Alex, you know, having a majority of people in a district or in a state elect an individual means they have a majority of support, you know, going into their service. Right. That really matters when you're trying to then carry weight into that office to do some good, right? And so that also means if you have a majority of support, even before ranked choice voting kicks in, you may not even get to the choices, right? You might not even right. get to the ranking because you have so much support. So if somebody is universally supported, 50% plus one, that uh, like we saw in our US Senate race that was very hotly contested here in Maine with Senator Collins, Senator Collins was able to, to, to win without actually having ranked choice voting kicked in. Uh, in 2018, for instance, one of our competitive house districts, though, through the ranked choice voting system actually made the challenger get in a position to win over an incumbent in a very difficult position because there were multiple independents running and the second choice happened to be the Democrat. So in, in both of those situations, you had a situation where a Republican won without having to even use ranked choice voting, but we had ranked choice voting in the election, but also have an elected Democrat. So we have a situation where both parties can win, both parties can participate and increase participation. And so it, it's you know, it's not a detriment to either side, but I think, again, equalizer is a good good word for it. Mm -hmm. It makes sure that everybody has a voice at the table, um, but you can absolutely win even when you don't uh, rank the, the, you know, the candidates or you go through the, the selection process that way. So it, it's very, it, like you said, there's so many different ways to improve our systems. We don't have to just accept 
that the way we do things is the way we always have to do them. We can always seek to challenge, seek to question, and it's not a negative thing. You're seeking to, to, to do better, to improve, whether we're talking our elections and our democracy or whether we're talking uh, about other hard-hitting issues at the local or state level. Yeah, agreed. Um, I'm really excited to kind of see other states start thinking about and other municipalities start looking at ranked choice voting, which also can save money if you save, if you don't have to do an actual runoff election and, and you can, and I mean, that could be for a large city or this, I mean, that could be hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars um, and not having to roll out an entire second election. That's often confusing for people too. Um, so just one of the kind of cool things that uh, if you want to be forward thinking in government, that there's actually a space to do, um, which is pretty cool. Right. right. So if you're somebody who's like, let's let maybe you're somebody who's like, you know what, we need to limit government spending. We need to ratchet back uh, what we're doing. Maybe we need to, to, to tighten our belts a little bit. Then you should also support election reform. Right. right. You should right. also support ranked choice voting because it could absolutely save money. We're seeing with the two races in Georgia, how much hundreds of millions of dollars right. are being poured in outside and then tens of millions of dollars for the municipalities and the right. state to run the, these uh, runoff elections. They could have easily ranked the candidates. We would have already known who the people are, number one, and we would have saved taxpayer money. Who doesn't love to save money, reduce negativity, right, and, and increase yeah. choice and participation? I mean, could you These imagine what we could do with that money, like during a time like this, where you have, you know, record unemployment rates and things, and we're spending, I mean, the amount of money that we spend in our political system in general, mm -hmm. this is probably a rabbit hole for another day. You know, we could find, I'm sure we could sit down in an hour, find a thousand different places where that money could be better spent. With all the long lines at, at food banks right now, hundreds of millions, or even just let's just take the taxpayer money that's saved, the tens right. of millions of dollars, how much Georgians would benefit right. from that system. So I just, there's so many different things. It doesn't necessarily have to be just one particular election reform. There's so many different ones that when combined together, make our system better for everyone. Again, regardless of political affiliation or party, when we're talking about automatic voter registration, another good example, when you're, in, or when you're reducing administrative redundancy in the system, you're saving time, right. you're making it more efficient and effective. So the, the idea is good governance, right? Coming back to what is common sense, what makes sense for the taxpayer, what makes sense for our society as a whole. Ultimately, there's so many election reforms that we could do that marry all of those concepts and bring progressives and conservatives together, depending on how you look at what we're trying to solve. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. I think this is hopefully uh, an interesting sort of reflection on some of this for um, folks that are listening. Um, and, and, you know, for them, I mean, is there anything else? I know we've covered a few different kind of basis here, is there anything that we didn't get to talk about or any kind of um, words that you want to kind of end on as far as folks that are interested maybe in getting involved more um, or just listening because they're kind of interested in, you know, some of the work that you've been up to in Maine? Well, I, I would just say as sort of a high level, um, don't wait your turn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that, that's as simple as, as here, I here. can <laughs> and whether we're talking a nonprofit organization, whether we're talking starting your own business even, whether we're talking joining a commission or a committee at the municipal level, maybe it's a statewide appointment by the governor, which it sounds scary, but I've been appointed by the governor before as a high school student, you can do it too, you know. So there's so many different things you can do. Don't let age or any sort of ancillary, you know, uh, you know, secondary uh, factor limit you in any way. Don't let outside voices limit 
motivate you? You know, so many times, particularly as a high school student, I wanted to get involved or a college student, I wanted to get involved. And so many said, oh, you're too young. You know, you can't vote yet. So your opinion doesn't matter. Those things. Right. Don't let that happen. Don't let that that stop you from helping people at the end of the day, because that's what why we do this. That's why you became mayor, mm -hmm. Alex. That's why I became a legislator. We wanted to do something good. We wanted to, um, you know, help our fellow uh you know, neighbors, we wanted to help our communities. We believed in that concept of public service, putting public service back into politics. If you believe that too, on whatever level we're talking about, do it. Like, don't let anybody stop you. You can absolutely make it happen, whether it's elected office, appointed office, whether it's starting a, your own nonprofit group or joining something, an existing organization. There's so many ways to get involved. Just get involved. We need you now more than ever. We need a diversity of voices at the table. We need young people to step up to the plate uh, and take up over the mantle of leadership. Uh, agreed a thousand percent and um, uh, really glad to be able to talk about some of these things with you and uh, and appreciate you sharing some of these thoughts with the folks that are listening. Um, and so uh, we'll also be excited to see some of the things that you're up to next in Maine um, over the next couple of years. And uh, we'll have to, um, I'm going to hopefully get to do some more exploring of the state myself. So I'm going to have to stop off in SACO at some point once we're kind of past uh, all the COVID stuff. Absolutely. Open invitation to come to Maine. Maine is vacation land. So you have to. <laughs> <laughs> Will do. All right. I'm taking you up on that for sure. Um, well, th thanks again for everything that you've worked on and for sharing some of those thoughts um, with me today here on uh, Rethinking. So thanks, Justin. Thanks, Alex. Hey, everyone. Alex here. If you want to find show notes, sources, and more information, you can do so in the YouTube description or online on my website at rethinkingwithalextorpy.com. Please don't hesitate to reach out to me with any questions or feedback at alex at rethinkingwithalextorpy.com or on social media. And if you liked what you heard, please consider leaving a positive review, subscribing, liking, or sharing this episode with a friend. Thanks again for listening.